0: The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. We're in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Take your Bibles and find your way to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Let me give you a little bit of the plan of what's happening in the book of Deuteronomy in our study. We are finishing up the Ten Commandments tonight, and... As we do, um, we'll be turning to some historical section in the the final part of chapter 5. It's a a great look back of what happened after the children of Israel received the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words of Moses. Then we're going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And let me just give you some some, uh, highlights of what's upcoming in that chapter. Uh, Probably the most profound uh, writing of God in his word about family discipleship, about what it means to invest in the successive generations that God has given us, and what it means to be a church that cares for passing on truth to the next generation, and what it is to hand the baton off and to be faithful in our own lives. We're going to spend some significant time in Deuteronomy 6, and then we're going to pick up sometimes two and three chapters at a time and grab some of Israel's big blocks of history that Moses recounts, and we'll stop in Deuteronomy 13 and in 17, and we'll look at what it means for when God actually says, I want to make provision and prescription for what you need to have in the king that you're going to choose, even though you shouldn't choose a king, and I should always be your king. He made provision for them when they did that. And moving all the way through, uh, through the song of Moses in the end, and then even um, we'll start answering strange questions like, if Moses wrote Deuteronomy, how does Deuteronomy record Moses' death? An interesting question, isn't it? And we'll talk about that. But we've been studying, in a slower pace, the 10 words of Moses, the 10 commandments. And that's on purpose. These are the, um, the 10 uh, bullet points that God made of his law for the children of Israel to, to anchor all of their thinking and all of their acting, a- acting back to. Now, remember, there's a lot of suppositions as to why there are only 10, and why there are uh, uh, no more and no less. Uh, some of the Jewish tradition, and I I actually thought this was kind of humorous at first, and then in the end, I thought not a bad idea uh, that it was 10 words because you have 10 fingers and you could just count them off. Because there's certainly, you know, there's north of 600 commands in the Old Testament. Why just these 10? We don't know exactly, except that God said through Moses, these 10 words you need to anchor your life to. These 10 words, these 10 commandments are not the way a Jew was saved in the Old Testament. They weren't a way that someone could obey and then God would check those, those boxes and, they would, and then declare them righteous. I'm studying that from a backwards perspective in the book of Romans. These were 10 words of grace that did two things. All right? The first thing they did was they were, they were constitutional laws for the nation of Israel. If you violated these laws, you could be put to death for violating some of them you could be held accountable you could be severely disciplined as a part of the covenant community so in a sense they were they were the law for they were the restrictions the regulations for the people of Israel but here's the challenge not everyone in Israel was truly saved and redeemed in the heart we'll find out later in Deuteronomy he says some of you are circumcised on, in the flesh, but your heart is not circumcised. In other words, you have an outward attachment to religion, but there's nothing in your heart that loves me. He'll bifurcate and distinguish those very clearly. So, not only did they regulate the covenant community just like they would a, a neighborhood or a city or state, but more than that, these were expressions of this is important sanctifying grace. These were things that you should aspire to after your heart was converted before the living God. Yes, the, 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 uh, the little uh, uh, kid down the road and, the, and, the, and the, the bad neighbor was held accountable to these as a part of the community. But even more than that, God said these are the aspirations of the heart. Because in them, as we saw this morning in Matthew chapter 22, the entire law is summed up into two simple commands. What are they? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The first four commandments, loving God. The second six commandments, loving your neighbor as yourself. We come to the end of these ten words, and it's very interesting how God, through Moses, wraps up these ten essential sanctifying graces in the ten words of Moses. One of the most enduring concepts in our generation is in a little phrase. It's something you know very well. It's something perhaps you've cashed in on. It's something that you have memorized, whether you know it or not. You've seen it written. You've heard it said. And you've probably returned something because of it. It's the phrase, satisfaction guaranteed. Satisfaction guaranteed. What an audacious promise. Satisfaction guaranteed. I actually ordered something from a, a pet Thing a pet store on uh, um, uh, line and, and it had a promise satisfaction guaranteed. I mean, how does your dog communicate that he's satisfied or she's satisfied with that? Promises attached to automobiles, to stereos, to music CDs, even to cheese and crackers. I saw on some sharp cheddar cheese satisfaction guaranteed. Add to that the advent of the infomercial. It's capitalized on the concept of guaranteed satisfaction. The restaurant business has flourished with the promise of satisfaction guaranteed. The home shopping network has made an empire out of the promise guaranteed satisfaction, and Nordstrom has become actually the gold standard for satisfaction guaranteed. If you don't like it, bring it back, and they'll return, they'll exchange, or refund you for it. Now, don't misunderstand. I, I, I'm a big fan of satisfaction guaranteed. I have returned products with with receipts, and it's probably a little bad. I, I don't mind doing that. My sweet wife's just, oh, I, don't, I just don't want to do that, and I, I keep saying, honey, that worker there, they go home, that, that, that's not theirs. That, that's not they are invested in this product, and she's just so sweet that she doesn't really enjoy that, and is it bad to enjoy taking things back anyway? I know Bob loves taking things back. You just seem like the kind of guy who returns everything. Is that right, Kathy? Yeah, satisfaction is guaranteed in the Taylor home. I can guarantee you that. Well, for months now, we've been studying the 10 words, 10 commandments, and more than anything else, I have learned that the focus of these divine standards is not merely an outline of morality, but rather an outline of how a believer can fulfill the law of love in Jesus' words in Matthew 22. As we said, the first four commandments are directed toward God. The second six commandments are directed toward others. In this final commandment, though, in Deuteronomy 5.21, perhaps the deepest level of loving your neighbor is defined. It's the most comprehensive commandment in all 10 of them, and it is internally and externally defined and applied even within the commandment itself. Deuteronomy 5.21. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, And you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, and how about this, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. What in the world is going on here? This is the sin of wanting what someone else has to the extent that you sin to get it or you sin in your relationship with that person because they have it and you don't. Now, to unpack this a little bit, just as a little outline, I want to give you four ways to deal with the sin of coveting. I think that popped right out of this text. Four ways to deal with the sin of coveting. We all struggle with coveting. Ever been to someone's house? And then suddenly yours is not as big as it used to be in your mind. Not as pretty as it used to be. It's not as this. It's not as that. How do we deal with the sin of coveting? Well, let's start with the verse itself. Let's understand number one, understand the nature of coveting. What is this thing called coveting? There's a spiraling effect, there's a progression of violence or disruption from the shedding of blood to the ruin of personal reputation in all these commandments. But this one doesn't really deal so much with what is outside. This deals with what's going on in the heart. When when the Lord through Moses says, you shall not covet, this is an internal attitude he's dealing with. There are two words used in in this verse. Hamad, to strongly desire, covet. That's the word for covet. And awa, you shall not desire or set your desire. You shall not strongly desire or set your desire. In other words, you shall not lust after, not not lust just in in a sense that we use it sexually. You shall not strongly desire what your neighbor has that causes you to be, what, discontent. What's remarkable about this commandment is it raises the issue of sin and disobedience from the level of mere act. To the highest level of attitude. Moses, the Holy Spirit, dissects our heart in the 10th commandment. Turn over to Matthew for a moment. Matthew chapter 5. Interestingly, this sin of coveting is picked up a few places in the New Testament that we'll reference. In Matthew chapter 5, you know what that is. That's the Sermon on the Mount. Look at what's going on here, Matthew 5, 27 and 28. You've heard it said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, I know what you're saying. We already dealt with that command when we talked about, You shall not commit adultery. We dealt with part of the command, that was the external expression of that. Coveting takes that to a whole new level, a deeper aspiration. This is that little phrase, in the heart, in his heart. Before a person ever commits adultery externally, it's already happened in the heart. Before a person ever steals, it's already been coveted in the heart. Every one of the last six of the Ten Commandments, you can trace back to something that happened with this Tenth Commandment in the heart before it was expressed outwardly. In these other commandments. All of us have in us desires that burn for sin, and if those flames are fanned, they transform thought into action. I think it's interesting that um, so many people attack this this sin in in a deep way. I, I love the words of John Piper when he says, covetousness is desiring something so much that you lose your contentment in God. Now, now let that marinate. Covetousness is desiring something so much that you lose your contentment to God. He says, the opposite of covetousness is contentment in God. When contentment in God decreases, covetousness for gain increases. It's idolatry because... The contentment that the heart should be getting from God, it starts to get from something else. I appreciate what he's saying, and I've seen it in my own heart and agree with him. Covetousness is when you say, I won't be happy unless I get, and you fill in the blank. It's a sin of discontentment. Now, just for a moment while we're in the New Testament, bump over to Romans chapter 7. We'll look at this in some detail in a few months or so. He's in this argument uh, uh, making the point of, of the believer's um, union with Christ and relationship to uh, morality and moral standards in the law itself. And he just throws this in, in verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary... I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the Lord had said, you shall not covet. In other words, there's a great insight in there. Paul says, coveting was so much a part of my heart, I wouldn't have known it was sin unless the Lord stopped and said, that's sin. It's so natural to want what we don't have. And what's worse here is wanting what someone else has. Back to Deuteronomy chapter five. Let's look specifically at uh, at, at these um, at these nuances, these expression of coveting. Let's ask a uh, uh, go to a second part of coveting. You have to calculate the extent of coveting. Calculate the extent of coveting. You, the first way to deal with the sin of coveting is to understand the nature. The second way is to calculate the extent. Now, this is going to get pretty personal, pretty fast. Deuteronomy lists the coveted items as a wife, a house, land, a manservant, an ox, a donkey, or anything else. By the way, Exodus uh, indicates them to be a house, wife, manservant, man, uh, maidservant, ox, donkey, or anything else as well. Deuteronomy, house and wife are reversed and land is added. There is a little difference there as Moses preaches through these. But this command is intended to be concrete, not abstract. He could say, don't want what someone else has. He didn't do that. The last phrase actually says that. Don't want anything that anyone else has. But before he gets to that, he gets very specific, very practical, and says, I want you to understand what I'm talking about. Now, it's intended to be concrete, but not Exhaustive. There are things that we covet that weren't even around during um, Moses' time. Well, let's look at these for a minute. He says, first of all, a house, where you live, all that's in it. It is a special and unique sin that Americans have because we have such nice houses. Now, you say nice houses, I know what you're thinking. Well, my house is okay, but I can tell you someone else's house is off the chart. And I guarantee you that person can say, you think my house is nice? Yes, but I went to a Christmas party last year and you're not gonna believe this. And if you went to that guy's house, he'll say, yes, but I was at the White House last year. It goes on and on and on. You ever find yourself wanting what someone else has now before we get into this list let's let's be very practical and very very honest there's nothing wrong with someone having a nice picture and saying i like that picture where'd you get it and you want to get it too that's not sin what sin is when you want theirs to the extent where you violate that relationship or you want that so much so that discontentment finds its way elbowing god out of first place in the worship of the heart and that becomes what we desire I've moved several times in my my life. Kim and I have owned a few houses and we've bumped around. We ended up in Kansas City. It's, never would have thought that a few years ago. Love Kansas City. We've shopped for houses. I think real estate people, and I love them, we had a really good one. But real estate people, people leverage coveting. <laughs> they just want you to see that whatever you had was not as good as what you can have. There's nothing in, in, in essence wrong with that. You can live in a nicer house. The problem is when you begin to cross over that and say, this is where my joy, my contentment are found. He goes on and says wife, someone else's spouse for you singles, can I just say that? Say this? It's desiring to have someone in a way that's inappropriate even before they're your spouse. You desire someone else's spouse. And this is what it typically looks like. It's not necessarily a sexual thing as much as it is you see some interaction and you think, oh man, he has, he has a great wife. If only my wife would be like that. Oh, um, she has such a wonderful husband. Did you see how he treated her? If you didn't, I want to tell you how he treated her so you can treat me that way. But all of these covetous Idols have to do with self-pleasure and ultimately self-worship. Man-servant, maid-servant, this is employees. This is the business, in other words. You look at someone else's business, you say, wow, they've got it better than I do and all the different nuances. An ox, an ox is an amazing animal. Now Think about what what the Israelites did with and got out of the ox, and you go to third world countries and it's still the same way. They ate it, they wore it, they used it for tools. There was no part of that animal that wasn't used. So if a person had an ox or, or a nice ox or, or a, a group of oxen or oxes or whatever you say, the plural of that, oxers, it's easy to look at them and say, their possessions are better than mine. I want theirs. Do you see how this go, backfills all of it? Because this could cause you, to, on, on the wife um, level, to commit adultery, another commandment. This could cause you to want to steal that, another commandment. They all are fed by this commandment. Donkey. It's probably the best. Uh, our best vernacular, is that a pickup truck? They've got a nice pickup truck. There are two things in life you never want to own, okay? Two things in life you never want to own. Number one is a pickup truck, and number two is a master key to anything, People will use you like a napkin if you have those two things. I guarantee you. I need to use your truck, by the way. But look at this lesson or anything else. (laughs) Don't desire anything else that your neighbor has. Now again, let's qualify this. This doesn't mean you don't go over to someone's house and say, those are nice dishes. I'd like to have dishes like that. You acquire those dishes for yourself. But again, the issue is two-dimensional when it causes a problem between you relationally and this other person where you feel jealous or bitter or angry or upset or lie or cheat or steal to have theirs, or vertically, it impacts our relationship with God where we say, I can't be happy if I don't have what they have. It also sets up a false dichotomy of the haves and the have-nots. And you got to understand, God's economy is not rich and poor. Jeremiah, we've sung it. We've talked about it over and over. Jeremiah 9. If you're wealthy, don't put your stock in your wealth. If you're strong, if you have might, don't put it in that. Wherever your confidence is, know that that's not what the Lord looks at. The only way, the best way probably to understand that is to do a really good study of, of the men that Jesus chose to be his disciples and apostles. The, the, these were not A players. You know, if, you were, you know uh, if this was a, all the prophets were around and you were picking your team to spread your, your uh, good news, Jesus certainly would have been looked at and said, you know, that, that guy did not get the best of the pick. And he did that on purpose. We are the First Corinthians, one, not many wise, the not many noble. Don't let a covetous heart cause in you the idea that a person is better or worse because of stuff they have. It's remarkable that this sin of coveting backfills and informs all the other nine commandments. It's at the heart. You're desiring something more than God. Now, here's the reality. All of us do it every day. All of us do it every hour. The fight of our lives is a fight against covetousness. It's a fight against desiring things in this world that we choose. Well, we believe the lie of the enemy who says, if you have that, you'll be happy. Really? Will you be happy? Here's the great lie you will be for a while. It's the great lesson of Ecclesiastes. We've talked about this before. You know what the lesson of Ecclesiastes is, right? It's juicy fruit. I mean, Juicy Fruits, the best gum ever created. It says the best taste in the world for about 30 seconds. And then it's just awful. It is terrible. And you have to either spit it out or put more in. That's that's the the lesson that Solomon said. I tried everything that this world had to offer. How about this? He says in chapter 2, all that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. And he had the means and the power to actually accomplish that. He didn't have to covet anything. He did it. He had it. And what does he say in the end? Steam off a cup of coffee. Havel. It's a vanity of vanities. It just disappeared. It's transient. The roller coaster always comes to a stop. The pleasure always comes to an end. And even if you're enjoying whatever you think you're enjoying, as long as you can, you will eventually get sleepy, and you can't enjoy it when you go to sleep. Even if you covet A nice mattress. You forget about that about 10 minutes after you're asleep. I'm going to reference my sons, but from a long time ago, so I I can enjoy my life tonight when they were younger. It was impressive to watch uh, little kids, how content they can be until they see what their brother has. And then I think the first two words every human learns are no and mine. Then you have the mine fight mine, mine, no, mine, mine. There's no problem in saying, wow, I would like one of those. That's not a sin. The danger is thinking, he's a jerk. She's a jerk for having one of those, and I don't have it. And God, you didn't fulfill my satisfaction in this. You have to trace, we have to trace dissatisfaction back to its source. It's not that we just say, I can't believe I don't have, I can't believe I don't own, I can't believe I don't get to experience. That's a theological statement. Because what we're announcing to heaven and all of us inhabitants with God on the throne is God's providence is unacceptable to us. A serious affront to God. And all of us know it. Nothing you have ever owned has brought lasting satisfaction. Anything, it brings more coveting. It's the accessories. It's the stuff that goes with the stuff. It's the stuff that holds the stuff. It's the stuff that protects the stuff. It's the stuff that's in the safe that protects the stuff. It's the fireproof nature of the safe that protects the stuff. It's how many degrees it will hold. It's how many hours it will keep the fire out. It's this. It's that. It's on. It's on. On and on. Satan is so clever because He knows it won't satisfy us for a long time so he gives us just enough to be satisfied and we start getting dissatisfied with that. What do we look for? Something else to be satisfied with. Are you a golfer? Have you ever gone into a golf store after you have everything you need? Are you a hunter or a fisherman? Have you been to Cabela's? Do you like working around the house? Do you walk into Home Depot? I never know what I need At Home Depot, until I am in Home Depot. Home with a chainsaw. Why did you need that? I don't know, it was on sale. I had to have a chainsaw. You know, just fire it up in the garage. It just sounds and smells so wonderful. How many catalogs do you get at your house? Yeah, I don't know how they got our address. I think Satan... Is the master of addresses for catalogs. Coveting is a gateway sin. Think of it like this it's an access sin, it's a gateway into your heart sin. It's the first step toward outward and flagrant sin. It's the sin in the heart that once watered and cared for becomes the blooming sin in our lives. Few people steal without first wanting something that belongs to someone else. Few people commit adultery without first wanting to possess or at least borrow someone else's spouse. Few people kill without hating and wanting, coveting vengeance in their own heart. A third way to deal with coveting is Recognize the damage. Recognize the damage of coveting. Coveting has radical, horizontal dimensions and effects. It ruins relationships. It stymies them. Through the power of the Spirit, the law ceases being a mere external rule and becomes an internal motivating principle here in the 10th commandment. Listen, Jesus never owned anything except what he wore that we know of He was a pretty content man And his contentment came from God Do you understand that the 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 rule that Satan uses in our heart of coveting is an absolute lie Every time we covet, we believe a lie, and the lie is this will make me happier than God will make me happier. It also has the vertical dimension. not only horizontal, it doesn't ruin, just ruin relationships, but also is a stiff arm in God's face that says to him, I need something you made more than I need you. You ever given someone a gift And they were not thankful. In fact, they took the gift and walked off and didn't thank you. They didn't care about you anymore. They just cared about the gift. Think about what we we do to the the heart of God when we enjoy his gifts and his creation, his gifts in in the stuff that he allows us to enjoy. Now, again, let let me be balanced and qualify this. It doesn't mean that we can't have things. It doesn't mean that we can't want things or work hard to get things. That's the Protestant work ethic. That's a good thing. But if we do it at the expense of being satisfied with God and in meeting real needs around us, that's where the line is crossed. If anyone ought to enjoy stuff, it ought to be a Christian who can see the wonder of God in it. And I don't want to take this to an extreme, and I don't want to justify anybody's purchase or anybody's uh, desire to have things, but... uh, when you see something that you enjoy or like, can you trace it back to the grace and providence of God? Simple pleasures ought to remind us of God. Um, I was eating a, always comes back to food, doesn't it? I was eating a, a ribeye steak and um, I don't get to do that very often, but I got to do it. And uh, you understand that a ribeye has a rib, rib, a ribbon, a ribbon of fat that goes through it. And though the world will tell you, you know, you shouldn't have any fat and don't have fat, it's interesting to me that God said, give all the good stuff to the priest. And what was the good stuff? The fat. That's why we like ribeyes. It has so much flavor. But I, I was tasting it, and I was kind of joking with, with a friend about the, um, you know, the priest, and it dawned on me, what a, what a kind God to allow me to enjoy that piece of meat from an animal that he created, that he grew. When you drink orange juice, can you drink it to the glory of God? What a God who would make orange juice taste like that. I like fountain pens. I want to see a fountain pen, the creative nature of a fountain pen if someone is going to write with a fountain pen and enjoy it, shouldn't it be someone who can say, God, we understand that physics and order and history come into this. But if, if you want someone else's pen, or if you spend too much money on the pen, or if you, and you keep going, now you cross the line. Things aren't the problem. The most misquoted verse in the Bible is Paul's instruction to Timothy. What is it? Money is the root of all evil, Right? No. What is it? The love of money is the root of all evil. has horizontal and vertical dimensions. And fourthly, pursue the elimination of coveting. Pursue the elimination of coveting. Two ways to cultivate contentment. That's the only way you can do it. Cultivate contentment. Avoid situations that put you at risk in sinning. Until your heart is ready to be around your neighbor with stuff that's going to make you covet, maybe you shouldn't go there. Can I just suggest that you spend some time with people who have less than you? It doesn't have to be in Overland Park or Prairie Village or Lenexa or Olathe. It, it would be good for all of you to take a good, solid missions trip to South Africa or Russia. Uh, we were in Russia just uh, last year. Just overwhelmed. The culture shock was not going there. The culture shock's coming home. You know, there's um, no shower, just a bathtub with a little handle. All the conveniences are gone. And then my friends who I was staying with, um, you know, the Claussens, that you know they live in this without complaint. And I just felt like such a Western American wimp. When you're in places where you see that people have chosen to live with less for the gospel, it can really awaken your heart to the realities of the priorities that God intends for us to have. All ten commandments are intended to be internal before they're externally manifest. Manifest. What are these 10 words? We've talked about it through and through and over and over. And I've repeated it more times than you probably want to hear again, but let's remember this is how you die to yourself. This is the Bill of Rights for God and for your neighbor. The Ten Commandments are not the Bill of Rights for us. You shall have no other gods before me. That's God's right to exclusive allegiance. And when we do that first commandment, we give him that right. By the way, only a saved person can do that. Second commandment, you shall not make for yourself an idol. Do you see where that's rooted in covetousness? Any likeness of what's in heaven or on the earth. That's God's right to the definition of his image. What is God like? What does God look like, sound like, act like? He defines that. It's not up to our intuition and imagination. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That's God's right to honor and respect. And remember, that commandment has little to nothing to do with cussing or saying a word, a God's name with a cuss word. You shall not take the Lord's name, which is the word Nassau, wear, carry. Don't, Don't say that you belong to the Lord in a vain way. That's God's right to honor and respect. If we say we belong to him, we ought to act like it. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You know what that is? That's God's right to tell us whatever he wants on whatever day he wants to. And in that, it's to be humane to our neighbors. That's loving them. It's to give God special attention. It's loving him as well. Honor your father and mother. That's the right of our parents to respect. Do not murder. That's the right of others to life and protecting their lives. You shall not commit adultery. That's the right of others to a pure marriage. You shall not steal. That's the right of others to property. You shall not bear false witness. That's the right of the people around us to an honest reputation, not clouded by us. And you shall not covet your neighbors, whatever. That's the right Of others to security. In other words, no person, especially in the covenant community, in the church, no person should ever feel threatened by the covetousness of anyone else in the body of Christ. So how are you doing at dying to self? How are we doing against these 10 words at protecting and promoting the rights of God, at protecting and promoting the rights of the people around us. That's how you die to yourself. That's how you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's how you love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. It's a given. And it's how the gospel is provoked in people. We start living like this, people say, that's different. That's way different Are you genuinely happy for someone when they experience or do something that you want to do or you want to own? And are you joyful for them? This is not the sermon to sell everything you have and become poor and wear a a, a dingy brown habit. This is the sermon where God says, look at your heart, what do you want? Do You want it more than me? And do you want it at the expense of the relationships around you? The comprehensive nature of these 10 words is staggering to me. I mean, when could we ever arrive at this? I mean, you could probably say, well, I haven't committed adultery. Jesus says, well, what about your heart? You could probably say, well, I haven't stolen. God says, have you coveted? You could probably say, I haven't um, uh, killed anyone. Well, have you hated your neighbor? You'd probably say, X, Y, Z, and... God said, well, what's going on in your heart? He ends the 10 words by saying, where is your disposition with me? Where is your disposition with others? Where is your disposition with stuff? And can you identify and combat the idols that come with that? It's not just a clever way that a preacher ends a sermon, but can I just tell you that is impossible unless Jesus Christ has supremacy in your life. He gave up all that we might have eternity. And do you understand that covetousness is really the the reaching to this world to give us something that only heaven can give us? I'm convinced that everything a Christian does in his heart is to try to make this world as much like heaven as possible. And God keeps saying, this this isn't heaven yet. It's not heaven yet. Keep striving, but it's not heaven yet. Yet. But when you look to heaven, do you think I'll get what I want and I'll do what I want and that will be heaven? Or do you think what a God and to be with him for eternity will make hiking, running, fellowship, whatever you enjoy, Wonderful because of his wonder. Special because of his glory. Enjoyable because it's a gift from him. No person or couple that Kim and I have ever dealt with, talked to when we were getting into premarital counseling, they never sit on our couch, they never sit in my office, and they say, you know, we want to be married. Why? Because we just want to be married. It's a good thing. It's better for the business. We think filing taxes jointly that love is the best way. So we just want to be married. I've never talked to anyone who wanted to be married more than they wanted to marry that person. In fact, you, you see them. We have a couple, a couple of couples in, in, in the church that have come through this last summer. And when they are engaged, they are they will run into walls in love, right? I mean, they're just dumb. I mean, just been hit in the head with the love thing, and uh, and that's the way it's supposed to be. We're grateful for that. Because they love a person, that's what solves coveting anyone else. That's the analogy that's used in Ephesians 5. We are to be betrothed and espoused to Jesus in such a way that no other idol wants to tug our heart away from satisfaction in him. Don't chase things that are not intended by God to give satisfaction. I mean, think about it. Do you think God is up there and the angels are, they have a conference room and they're saying, well, let's just give them everything they want. They'll be so happy without me. You understand that the world is under the curse, Right? You understand that God intends for us to be discontent with every part of this world unless we see it as a gift from him. And even then, it's just a shadow of what we'll have in eternity. How how can it be better than this? How can it be better than the best parts of this world? I I don't know how it works in, in heaven. I know there's no marrying, and I know there's no giving in marriage, I know the passage. He was debating the Sadducees. I know what Jesus says. But if my relationships, if all of our relationships in heaven will be so satisfying and so rich that we don't even need to be married, what kind of world will that be? Still think, though. May find a cloud and find that Kim girl. Just sneak behind and have some heavenly fellowship. Kiss her on the cheek. I hope. But we'll no. There's no marriage or giving marriage. I don't get that. While I have you now, can I just enjoy you here, though? What are you going to say, no to that? It's going to be better then. Don't covet, God says. How? Be satisfied in him. Father, give us spotlights on the parts of our heart where we're coveting. We all want Things that we believe will bring us satisfaction that only you can provide. Correct us and instruct us. Use our relationships with each other so that we can know not how to improve, but how to be holy. Continue to make our body, arms and legs, members that care for one another in good times and in struggles. Identify the idols in our hearts, Lord. You see them. Sometimes we don't and sometimes we do and we protect them. Make us teachable, Father for your glory and for our good. We are so immeasurably thankful that the gospel has been preached to us and that our hope is attached to him, the wonderful Savior, the Lord Jesus, the great God-man who not only died for our sins but rose from the dead and offers us that eternal life as well. What a Savior. Hallelujah, what a Savior. In Jesus' name, Amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch dot com.